The jury are people. They're going to know if you're not authentic and they know if you don't have integrity. It focused law for me like, wow, this isn't about knowing the rules. This is about how to communicate with people and how to be authentic and how to get what you are trying to get done. Becoming an incredible attorney is less about following one set path and more about following your passions, discovering what works for you and aligns with your values. I didn't get my degree till I was 40. When I got there, I really was just like, why am I doing this? And we did trial practice and it made me go, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be an athlete. Cause you gotta be prepared. You gotta be skilled. You gotta do that. And then the day of the trial, who knows what happens? The ref makes a call. According to a recent survey, only 19% of managing partners in U.S. law firms are female. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to LawHer, a show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I'm Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is Laher. Felice Duffy is committed to excellence and driven by passion. In the courtroom and on the soccer field. Founder of Duffy Law, Felice has served over 10 years as a federal prosecutor, clerked for federal district judge, the Honorable Stephen Underhill, and graduated summa cum laude Quinnipiac University School of Law. A dedicated Title IX advocate, and head coach of the Yale Division I women's soccer team. She was named to the first women's U.S. national soccer team and selected for the first Division I All-American women's soccer team. Felisa's first experience with Title IX was when she filed an action against UConn under the then-new Title IX statute to compel the creation of a women's soccer program. I sat with Felice to discuss following your passion unapologetically, fighting for gender equity, and shifting culture through education, but first, I wanted to know about her upbringing in Connecticut and how it influenced her worldview. I have nine siblings. I think all of us are within a range of 12 years. So one after the other. Um, and we grew up in Storrs, Connecticut. My dad was a professor. It was a you know civil rights, very liberal environment back in the 60s and 70s when we grew up. Came from California, went out to Storrs. And what I believe is that, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, but there were so many of us that our parents couldn't distinguish between us. So we had complete equal division of labor and we were treated equally that way. And I really believed because of our family upbringing and because of, I think, the environment in which we grew up in stores, Connecticut and the Times, I really believed that everybody was treated equally, boys and girls, men and women. And I actually had a rude awakening in college and learned that that wasn't necessarily the case. My mom is, was a very progressive liberal woman who believed in women's rights and believed in women's rights groups. My dad, you know, he called me a justice junkie. He was a fairness junkie. So coming from that background, I think sets the stage ultimately for me to come from that perspective. And being able to argue, nine sibs. Yeah, I think I learned that skill about how to persuade and align and argue uh, that also completely helped. I think that's one of the most important things about sort of going to college and going to university is that awakening. Before you were a lawyer, you were a competitive athlete and even received a PhD in sports psychology. Can you tell us a little bit about your athletic history? 
Sure. Stores itself was a hotbed of soccer, and it was really the throwback to football back in the 70s when I'm dating myself, (laughs) back when I was in high school. And it really still was the anti-football regime. And Joe Maroney at UConn, who's a, a legend in soccer, had really built an outstanding program there. So the guy who ended up coaching at UConn was a student teacher, and he was a player for the UConn team, Lenny Santeris, and he's a friend of mine. And he was student teaching at E.O. Smith, the high school I went to, which is literally on the campus of UConn. So it was all, in, you know, 60s, 70s, open campus. You did whatever you wanted. Um, thank God there was no cell phones. But you had the choice to go play soccer. And he said, uh, I went over there and he said, yeah, girls don't play soccer, which is interesting since he ended up being the women's soccer coach at UConn after I got that team. So I did play soccer with him. He was like, oh, you're not too bad. So big compliment. And I was literally, I was a farmer. I raised sheep. I showed them. I was a competitive shepherd. I did all sorts of stuff that way. And I wanted to be a veterinarian. I was walking to UConn to apply to the veterinary school, which is what I was familiar with, was what I wanted to do. And I got lost and went over McMahon Hill and went down and there was like the field of dreams soccer going on because it wasn't the stadium it is today. It was a little field with lights, like getting toward dusk. And there was a group of people around it and you could just feel the excitement. And I went down, I wedged my way in and I saw the men's team playing. I think I'm going to say it was Brown. I think it was Brown, very competitive. And I remember thinking, I want to do this. Police marched directly to the athletic department at UConn and asked to start a women's soccer team. At the time, only three women's teams existed in all divisions across the country. It would take two and a half years, a complaint to the Health, Education, and Welfare Department, predecessor to the Office for Civil Rights, and a threat of withdrawing federal funding before UConn would have a women's team. And while this battle could have pushed her into a legal career, all Felice wanted to do was play soccer. So everyone kept telling me that I should be a lawyer. Yeah. And I, quite frankly, I just wanted to play soccer. And I did. I played till I was probably late 20s, 30, in my 30s. I played, I played internationally. I played at UConn for five years. I was getting my degrees so that I could keep getting student loans because I didn't have any money so that I could keep playing soccer. I do tell kids that, but I also <laughs> believe that education is important. As I was doing that and I had finished all my classes at UConn and was playing everywhere. And I um, went to Yale and the AD was looking for a, whim- a woman. And I went down to meet him because there weren't many women coaching. And there was 87 people that applied. And he basically talked me into and pressured me into taking the job, which I didn't want to do because I wanted to play. So I coached for 10 years saying, I'm just going to coach until I finish my doctorate. So while I was there, I was the self-appointed Title IX advocate for women because I didn't I didn't have a vested interest in coaching. So for all sorts of protected categories for gender choice, I was the one that would always go forward and say, you can't do this. It was OK for me. I wasn't worried about losing my job. But I wrote a bunch of memos that I actually have. And the AD at one point, because there's a number of different athletic directors who was a lawyer, wrote back to me Kim, and said, you need to be a lawyer. Because I was quoting the NCAA manual. So I was very much an advocate back then. And then actually, when I was realizing I didn't want to, you know, pursue coaching, you know, I realized the culture was never going to change. And if I stayed there, I was just going to have to fight. And I didn't want to use my energy that way. And because years before I had just taken my LSATs on a whim, I got a message that said, your LSATs are going to expire at the end of July. And Quinnipiac Uh, University School of Law had just opened. And I just called up and I said, I know you get applications in 
you know, January, but would you accept when they were looking for people, they just opened, they're trying to get a credit and they're like, sure, we'll take you. And then I went and I took a leave of absence from Yale because they wanted me to stay. I was also working as an athletics, a senior athletic administrator. I was going to come back as that. And then I actually stopped going to law school because I was in my late thirties. It was the Socratic method there and they didn't treat you very well. It was too hard. And I hadn't worked that hard academically prior to that. And I just, it was a tough time because I was leaving sports and I talked to the Dean. I think I actually played them Tracy Chapman song that had just came out, come out. That's, you know, give me one mm-hmm. to stay. Yep. And, yes. I went in and I was like, I'm out of here. And he said, <laughs> we're going to keep you in case you want to come back. And I said, don't cancel my application. It was extraordinarily stressful for me at that time. I said, I don't want to threw my books away, said, I'm not doing it. And then the next year I went and spent some time at Yale doing senior athletic administration and I realized that that was really, I didn't want to be the lateral power hierarchy where paperwork and doing things like that, that was not my strength. Not what I want to do and had less power than as a coach. So I went back to law school. I love how it dials in and you get closer and closer to where you were supposed to be. And there's a very clear direction and path for that. And it sounds like you were already sort of doing the work, but by becoming a lawyer, it gave you the ability to just do it better and to actually achieve a result. Yes, except I didn't want to be a lawyer even when I went to law school. I really didn't. I was like, it's interesting. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was really like, oh my God, I was just playing soccer this whole time. I didn't get my degree till I was 40. So to have that background, have owned a house, have done all those things, had worked in other areas. And I think being an athlete makes a different difference actually. When I got there, I really was just like, why am I doing this? Till the last year, I met um, someone who's now like a mentor and a friend, Ernie Titel, who's one of the best lawyers in Connecticut. And we did trial practice. And it made me go, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be an athlete. Because you got to be prepared, you got to be skilled, you got to do that. And then the day of the trial, who knows what happens? You know, the ref makes a call. It's raining out. And like what happened to me in a trial once, my heel broke off my foot. So I had to walk around with pretending I had a heel on. So, and you have a team and a referee and it was so- You can win, you can lose. Well, right. It was, it mimicked that without, without, unless you wear heels, without hurting your knees. And, uh, you know, but he also was really about being an authentic person and working with integrity. not only because that's who he is, but that's how you communicate with a jury. Like cares about the judge, the jury are people. They're going to know if you're not authentic and they know if you don't have integrity and it made law, it focused law for me. Like, wow, this isn't about knowing the rules. This is about how to communicate with people and how to be authentic and how to get what you were trying to get done. That's what I like. That's made sense to me for law. Your career has included positions at major firms, a position in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and now your own firm specializing in Title IX actions. You've had a breadth of legal experience. When you opened your firm, how did you decide you wanted to specialize on Title IX? I kept saying, I'm going to go work at all these big firms in New York and everywhere because I want to see how the other side works so that I'll be the best little plaintiff's lawyer so I can have justice. And it just kept taking on and taking on. I kept getting these great opportunities. And every place I worked was a wonderful learning experience. I met great people, but it was kind of the ultimate white shoe firm that reflected the cultural way the world is, which is ruled basically by the white male model, 
which doesn't mean it's all white males, but, you know, it's white male, heterosexual, Protestant, da, da, da. But it was really not a place where women were going to naturally be included. But that, that's how it was. It was so fascinating. But I, at every place, I tried to get a diversity of experiences. I did. And clerking for Judge Underhill, all these things was kind of against my natural liberal progressive upbringing with law enforcement and the government. But I clerked for a job and seen them working and the people in Connecticut were great. And, you know, I really had developed a real understanding of the nobility of law enforcement. And I feel like it just everything expanded my views so that I can really appreciate, which is critical to my job now at Duffy Law, everybody's perspective. I say this now, like, I think I'm an anti-authoritarian. I mean, that's kind of what I do. So what am I doing working for the U.S. government? What am I doing working for large law firms? And, you know, when someone's and even Yale. Like, I didn't like people to tell me what to do. And in order to be successful in all those places, you have to listen to them. So a little obedient. I, yep. Yeah, I look back with sympathy on the people that were my supervisors in all these places. And they may laugh, too, because I always wanted to be part of a team. That was the other thing. Being part of the U.S. attorney's team, being part of a team of these law firms was fun. And that was like athletics. And I knew that I wasn't going to make a career of the U.S. Attorney's Office for a lot of reasons, mostly the, the anti-authoritarian, like this is a great experience. <laughs> At the time that I left, I actually happened to be with my age and my years of experience. There became a time when I was literally eligible to retire. And I didn't know that. And someone told me and I was like, wow. Title IX is often mistaken simply as a gender equity in school sports law. In 2011, former President Barack Obama issued guidance reminding schools that the scope of the law includes sexual assault as a civil rights matter and clarified protections for LGBT students. Shortly after, Felice worked for U.S. Attorney for Connecticut, Deidre Daly, to train college stakeholders, students, and police officers about Title IX. And as that evolved over the next three years, I really realized that this was a place where I could make a difference and it would it could be a nice place to go be able to go out and make a difference in real people's lives, which he, I, I wanted to do. In fact, I started with federal, being a federal criminal lawyer. And then we've now, after the first year and a half, two years, because of how we do it, what we like to do and the volume of cases, we represent students, faculty, staff across the country now, primarily in colleges and universities on sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, both sides again, which is unusual. Most lawyers pick a side. And I quite frankly thought that I would be representing women complainants. That was what I thought because that was my orientation. And um, when I got involved in it, I realized that first of all, the majority of people aren't the, you know, highly violent sexual predators. So there's a small percentage of people that you know need to be probably expelled, perhaps put in jail, but definitely addressed that way. But the majority of these things were happening in an educational environment. It was mostly acquaintance issues, so people knew each other, and this was a perfect opportunity for people to participate in educational, you know, things, ways to understand how to have this not happen in the future. As a federal prosecutor, I was involved in so many investigations. But I really realized that it was the process that's the problem. It's not a good process for either complainants or respondents, male or female. And I thought it made sense to represent, again, both people. And this is what I would say in athletics. This is what I say to a lot of our clients. And I think it's true is, you know, we'll help you through this. 
you know, as long as you deal with yourself and others with dignity and respect, and you're going to look back on this in 10 years, and you're going to feel good about how you handle it, and you're going to have a better outcome because you'll learn from this. I admire that sort of wanting to work with both significantly, just partnering with those people and helping them navigate their way through this very complicated and like terrible experience for everyone involved. So you're well-versed on discrimination in universities. Do you observe gender discrimination in the legal field? Um, There's gender discrimination. There's all sorts of discrimination because we've come from a cultural history where there's been a certain group of people in charge and all our systems and all our rules and all our laws is still controlled by that power elite. It's gotten better. It's getting better. There's no question Black Lives Matter helps. There's no question that all Me Too movement, all those things. But those are the things that are stretching the seams of what you know controls our world. I think it's way better. But absolutely, I think, for example, my experience was in the federal criminal field. There weren't very many women. There just weren't. What do you think will be different for the future generations of women in law? <laughs> I think this is a very interesting time in our world. Mm -hmm. I think politically, personally, I think the pandemic changed a lot of people's perspective about what they want to do with their life. I think this is really a universal, a time for the universe and the world to be um, really addressing all those issues. So it's really hard for me to think about what the future is going to look like. I do think there is with the Me Too movement, with like I said, Black Lives, all the, all the movements, those are taking marginalized people and helping them mainstream better. If nothing else, it's creating community group of support, which is so critical in success in this world. It's one thing I didn't really have, but I learned, especially when Deirdre Daly was our U.S. attorney, just made a difference, not only as a role model and visually knowing that, but there are people that are actually now with those movements actively, not only helping each other, but trying to educate other people about that. One of the other smaller things I do is gender equity in athletics. And that's important to me because as a woman, I did that and, you know, I lived that. So mostly when I represent, I represent a few coaches, but students, particularly female students, they can't afford a lawyer. However, Every once in a while, I'll do it like every year. I did a couple of cases, one, you know, for student plaintiffs to bring those cases. And I would do it on a contingency basis. And what is happening now, we just represented 12 people in the Yukon case. I don't know if you know that. I filed a, a complaint in the 70s. We now did, did this for these 12 rowers on this huge program that was cut based on uh, Title IX. It was a very, very, very difficult case. We had a great legal team. But the thing that inspired me most, which is different than it used to be, is that it was 12 of them that were willing to come forward. And when you have that support in the community and the, in the coaching staff and the people at UConn were helping them, the alums helped. To have that support, and that's very different. Um, they're now going to be paying, I think, the women's soccer program, you know, equal pay. And a lot of that's, again, my roots. I mean, I did that back in the 70s, and it's so cool. I think them as a group filing a case together is not just one person because it's that scary. That's hard. But what we're seeing now is groups of women doing this now. And we also educated them with our team of women that I think that is going to make a huge difference in the future in law for women. 
I got to tell you, I've been doing these interviews now for a few weeks, speaking with uh, women lawyers, and that has come up every single time, whether it was in law school or starting a firm or just trying to handle family that the lack of a support system was detrimental. And then fostering a support system is what made them able to do it. And what I'm seeing also is there's all these pockets where this stuff seems to be developing. And I think the, this is one of those things where the pandemic helped, where it sort of forced everyone online to find like like-minded people and to just get their support group. So I love that. And I, I saw the headlines. I'm a USWNT fan. So I wanted to ask you if you had seen about the equal pay coming in. <laughs> I read every article that comes out about gender equity yeah. every morning, I think. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I have to for my business. Yeah. yeah, I didn't look to see exactly what the terms were, but that's obviously been a long time coming. Yeah, and it was amazing that as a group they did that and they took it on. It was so critically, it was perfectly timed with the Me Too movement. I mean, I'm really, I'm so psyched they did that. To keep making forward progress, we have to know our rights. I asked Felice what information every college student should have about Title IX. They should understand that the Title IX process is incredibly difficult and complicated. And as a complainant, you may not be aware of that before you get involved in it. As a respondent, you may think, hey, I can just walk in and tell the truth and may not understand the consequences of that. And so I would say there are rights that you have along the way, but most students, you know, are just living their lives and they don't understand the potential consequences. I mean, at one point we were calling it for respondents, academic capital punishment. And that was the term that was coined. And if you don't understand that, you really need somebody, I think, to have somebody advise you if you get wrapped up in this. That's one thing. The second thing is that I think that if students could understand this is an educational process, but that has to be supported by the schools, because when you get in like a court like system and people start, you know, but for respondents, if you don't come across as defensive, because if someone accuses you of something you didn't do, let's just take that case. And I'm not saying that that's I believe everybody on both sides, but it feels terrible. But you have to really understand this is about learning. This is about learning who you are. This is about your social fabric. This is about respecting people. You know, so I think they have to really understand that this is not just about did or didn't do this. And I think for complainants, it's the whole thing about male or female complainants because it happens to both. But I'm just going to talk, say her, because it's just easier at the moment. But for women they have rights and they can go through this process, but those rights, they need to understand or any complainant that this should be about healing for them. This isn't about making sure the school does the right thing and schools should be supporting that. And hopefully the new administration will get that in place. But, and I'll just give you an example. Somebody may not want to bring a formal complaint that they have to do now because the rules are different against somebody who is their best friend because it may rip apart their social fabric. This is what I advise complainants about. And it's complicated. You don't have to take care of other people. So how that's a mantra for especially women, especially younger people to learn. And this is what a lot I do with advising is, this is not about you taking care of your parents, about other women that this might've happened to. 
This is about making sure you go through this process in a way that you control, that you take care of yourself first. And that's a major, major lesson that I talk to people about. And I work with them and often have to get the parents out of the picture because parents are angry when this happens to their kids. And that, you know, maybe what do you need from this? Do you need to speak? Do you need to be heard? Do you need to just have you? Could you have a restorative justice informal process with this kid to just say confidentially, this is what you did to me. And the person says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And you resolve that. And that is that's available in most schools, but it's not forefront. You don't just have to step into this process and make it adversarial and go through the whole thing. You need to understand that this is going to for both people, it's going to affect the rest of your life. And you really need to understand, look at what you're doing and understand, you know, what you're going through right now and how it can be a learning experience. And I say this because this isn't how it works right now, but this is how you create culture change. This is what everyone's trying to do. And they try to do that with everybody, affirmative action laws. And then it doesn't result in culture change because it's just you stick to the laws and you follow it. But this type of educational thing, if kids can approach it that way and students can approach it that way with advisors, I think schools would want to do it. It really should be driven from the schools, but they don't they're not equipped to do it. And if those kids realize that and they have the rights that could enable them to go through that and get that help, that will actually keep both kids in school. Maybe, maybe not. I've had people say to the other side, you know, you don't want to have this on the record because you know, and I'm not talking one of the 3%. And, but even so, that's what the complainant wants. But if you promise, you know, if you withdraw from school and don't go here while I'm here and you get sex education training and do all these things, I'll make sure that it's not on your record because I know you're going to be a changed human. I know that you were drunk when you did it. I get that. Get alcohol counseling. Then you can go to a school somewhere else. And that saves a kid's life. And if that kid realizes, you know what? you're right. I shouldn't have done that. It was awful. I'm going to do that. That's great. doesn't always happen. We work toward that. And that's one thing I think, and it's not really about their rights because the rights are spelled out in the handbook. They know what they're, I mean, it's just that those rights in writing don't reflect the real process. You're also dealing with, like you said, kids where they're at this pivotal point in their life where they're transitioning from living with their parents and then sort of this like soft introduction to adulthood. It's a very, 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 yeah, pivotal point in their life to have something like this happen to them for both parties. So, and it's extra soft right now, I think in our culture. Do you want to expound on that? I mean, I'm not going to be pulling research out or anything, but my belief I will say then is that, you know, there's a lot of people saying that college is the new high school because I think there's some, Clearly, social media has an effect on everybody. I don't think there's any question about that. Not only the way it affects people's minds and polarizes people's opinions, and when you grow up communicating on text and FaceTime and not in person, when you grow up reading social media and reading all that stuff and playing games instead of reading books and congregating in person, that has an impact, I think, on the emotional maturity of a person. I think not only perhaps is there more I'm going to say learning disabilities, which, of course, they're not disabilities. They're just people that think different than the mainstream. So I get that, which is also what we talk about when we're in these schools. Like, look, this isn't stalking. This is somebody who's on the spectrum. They should be educated about what that is. This person needs to be able to communicate here. But I think because the population is bigger at schools, because perhaps there's a higher ratio of those types of things, because maybe the medical world has enabled a lot of people to function better 
And because obviously people are uncovering that more and diagnosing that more, but put that a pandemic on top of that. The Office for Civil Rights just released something a few months ago with a lot of research saying, I'm totally paraphrasing here. Everybody in educational systems is basically should be diagnosed with anxiety. It is an anxiety crisis. Everybody, teachers, administrators. So you take that and you put that into what the college is. Everybody's concerned about making sure that people feel, I'm going to use the safe word because it's an interesting word because people should be safe. But I think colleges are really, really concerned about making sure that people, they're respecting all this, which isn't easy to do. So with all that put together, students are there. It's soft. You know, it's not on one hand because they're kicking kids out for doing certain stuff, but that's easier. But that's because maybe they're making protecting too many rights. So I think that transition into college is not you're not an adult. I mean, I, I recognize a difference. You know, it's an interesting place. And I, I'll be interested to see how colleges evolve and restructure through this to make sure they survive. What is your hope for the industry? What are you looking forward to seeing? I think that particularly in mine, lawyers need to be counselors, not legal advocates. And I think that would be a wise thing to do anyway. My opinion is if you walk into an educational institution and you're advising somebody in these processes, and you're like, you can't do that because it's hearsay. And I'm going to nail. Schools don't like that. Doesn't work. Not good for you. I think the legal industry is changing. And I think it's opening up to more counselor type activities. What I really hope for what we do specifically, aside from, you know, equality and world peace, is that, and I hope the Biden administration does this with what they're working on right now. I think they'll probably get closer to it. They really, with the way we treat it, there's a real opportunity to use this process at schools to create real cultural change. Because if you can use this law to create culture change, that until you change attitudes, You cannot change, you know, how people are treated. So this is a real opportunity. And we do it. I feel like every one of our clients, pretty much all of them, we've done we've done that with. They've seen the world a little differently. They've had a little more compassion for the other side. They've had more compassion for themselves. They understand their role in it, whether not saying that anyone's to blame, but what that means. They understand you know, how to navigate things. It's really, I feel like I'm a coach again. It feels like athletics. Like, and I say this, this is what I would say to my players. So I really, I do believe that. I mean, people laugh at me because I am a really an optimist after everything I've been through and done. I am really like, I do believe there is a way forward for our particular title nine issues and the way lawyers handle it to create real cultural change. Excellent. Full circle back to being a coach. If you weren't a lawyer, what would you do instead? Well, I think you're asking me the question I believe I've been asking myself for the last (laughs) pandemic years. Um, It's hard to say. I'm very much into the, I would love to be a mediator in compassionate conversation between fighting groups. I also, you know, if I wasn't a lawyer earlier, I think that another way to create change, although I'm not so sure now, would be politics. I would love, love to be you know, a senator or a congressperson to be able to work with people and do these things. I'm not sure I would right now. I always wanted to be a cowboy. (laughs) And I say that because I've gone to dude ranches. I've gone up in the mountains and I've done all that. I love to ride horses. I love nature. I'd love to just go be like a hermit out in, you know, Montana. By focusing on her passion, Felice has been at the forefront of gender equality for decades as an athlete, coach, and attorney. 
So much of what makes a good lawyer great is infusing practice with passion. Use your energy wisely, look at the situation holistically, and identify your long-term goals. Just as Felice made the transition from coach to lawyer, sometimes we have to step back and see where we can implement the most change. A huge thank you to Felice for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You have been listening to Laher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or it just made you smile, please share this episode with a trailblazer in your life. For more about Felice Duffy, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I'll see you next week on Laher where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. Mm-hmm.